A translation be made of the whole Bible, as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek, and this to be set out and printed, without any marginal notes, and only to be used in all churches of England in time of divine service. Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. On the 24th of October, 1603, King James issued a proclamation stating that he had convened a conference to be held at Hampton Court for the following year. The conference was to be attended by His Highness, the Privy Council, the bishops and learned men. The main reason for the conference was to allow the Anglican Church and the Puritans to air their concerns about religious practice in Britain with a view to achieving a resolution to their differences. As we saw in episode 6, James was a man of peace and unity, and his intention here was to relieve the tension between the two opposing groups, both of whom had been in his ear since his arrival in England. From our point of view in the 21st century, the major outcome of the conference was the laying of the groundwork for a new translation of the Bible, a translation whose impact on the world is virtually incalculable. Hello and welcome to A History of the King James Bible Podcast, Episode 7, The Hampton Court Conference. My research and references for this episode come mostly from Nicholson's God's Secretaries, McGrath's In the Beginning, Opfell's The King James Bible Translators, um, my own personal knowledge and opinion, and the internet. Now in Episode 6, I said we would be moving on from James but I'm happy to say that we're not quite ready to move on completely from James just yet. Now, as we have already established, the stated intention for the Hampton Court Conference was to find a way to bring some form of unity between the Anglicans and the Puritans. We're going to find in this episode that James was no fan of the Geneva Bible. Okay, so no big news there. The Puritans, however, were big time. What if the Puritans had wanted to promote the Geneva over the other versions? And what if James saw this desire as an opportunity to rid himself, finally, of that pesky Geneva version? What if? James's take on the Puritans helps us understand his view of the Geneva Bible. As we heard in episode 6, James was not exactly fond of the Puritans, mainly for political reasons. He distrusted them for their somewhat republican ideals, not necessarily for their religious views. Both James and the Anglican establishment had a long-standing distrust of the Geneva Bible, not because it was a bad translation, but because of its marginal notes. The Geneva Bible contains many annotations to assist the reader with what itself calls the hard places. Now, I'm going to read you what it says about the hard places, what it says itself. Let me just read a little bit here from McGrath about this. Um, The Geneva Bible offered detailed comments on critical verses, or to use its own phrase, most profitable annotations upon the hard places. 
Now, I think what we have to keep in mind is that this is the age of the Reformation, where people are coming to a new understanding of the Scriptures, and new at that time, uh, for many people, were concepts like justification by faith. So the translators of the Geneva Bible, having the understanding of this, used many marginal notes to assist the reader or the hearer with an understanding of these critical points in Scripture. Now, this the distrust that we've discussed here of the Geneva's annotations goes back well before James came to power, so much so that Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1559 to 1575, set the wheels in motion for a new Bible, because Elizabeth had decreed that every parish must have a Bible and that no one be prevented from reading it. But what Bible would it be? Now, Parker, who it said that we get the term nosy Parker from, now I'm not sure if that's just a bit of a legend, but it's something I picked up along the way. Um, Parker didn't want the Geneva Bible in all the churches because he felt that the marginal notes went against much of what was contained in the Book of Homilies, which was a, a collection of um, authorised sermons dating back to the reign of the boy king, King Edward VI, who coincidentally was born at Hampton Court. Now, Nosy Parker had been a favourite of Good Queen Bess, or Lizzie for short, having been chaplain to her mother, Anne Boleyn. Without digressing too much here, Elizabeth initiated religious reforms which were not as radical as those on part of the European mainland and were seen as a compromise with a view to maintaining religious peace in England. Bess chose Nosy Parker because she saw in him someone capable of steering the Anglican Church away from the rocks of dissension and away from being seen as far too Calvinistic or too Calvinistic. Religious stability, relevantly speaking, was a major feature of Elizabeth's long reign and certainly aided England's rise to prominence on the world stage. I think we have to acknowledge that this stability came at a cost to both her Catholic and Puritan subjects. Anyhow, Parker soon went ahead with his work on a new Bible, essentially a revision of the Great Bible, and thus the Bishop's Bible was completed in 1568. The relevance here is that the Geneva remained far more popular than the Bishop's Bible, despite the Anglican Church's attempt to oppose it upon the population. It was so popular with the people that Shakespeare used it whenever he referenced the Bible. Let's now move forward to King James. What was his view of the Geneva? James didn't like the Geneva Bible because of its marginal notes, mostly because they disagreed with his view of the divine right of kings, which we have heard so much about right throughout this series up to this point. Now, we won't go into too much detail here since we have spoken of it a number of times, but essentially it assumes that a God-King reigns with divine authority. That's why he and good Queen Bess, or Lizzie, basically believed that they were untouchable as far as human interaction goes. But as we know of James, he understood that kings were answerable to God. Now, I was planning to go into some detail about some of the marginal notes in the G Geneva Bible that James took exception to, but I think that would give us less time to look at our main topic here. So let's take a quick look at two. Um, and again, I'm going to use McGrath for uh, assistance here. The book of Daniel, 
relates the experience of Daniel and his colleagues who are portrayed as faithful to God in an alien environment dominated by a powerful king. Much of the narrative of the book concerns the tensions between the integrities of faith and the realities of life under an autocratic monarch. It is therefore little cause for surprise that the Geneva Bible picked up on the importance of this work in relation to the English situation. For example, the sixth chapter tells of how Daniel found himself being thrown into the lion's den for disobeying the king's orders. The text and marginal notes as set out in the 1599 read as follows. Daniel 6.22 My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Now the reference here is, there's a couple of references that you, you obviously can't see, uh, and they're noted as H and I. H, so this is the marginal note H. My just cause and uprightness in this thing in which I was charged is approved by God. And the note A about no hurt, for he disobeyed the king's wicked commandment in order to obey God, so he did no injury to the king who ought to command nothing by which God would be dishonoured. The implications of these annotations will be lost to none. The commandments of kings are to be disobeyed when they conflict with the will of God. Further comment on the place of a tyrant king can be found in the comments on Daniel 11.36, which speaks of such a king oppressing his people. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak mar marvellous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Now the marginal note here for uh, the note is S and T. S. Because the angel's purpose is to show the whole, the whole course of the persecutions of the Jews until the coming of Christ. He now speaks of the monarchy of the Romans, which he notes by the name of a king who were without religion and condemned the true God. The marginal note for I. So long the tyrants will prevail as God has appointed to punish his people, but he shows that it is but for a time. The point being made is that God has raised up such tyrants to punish his people for their sins. Now, this is something that actually James acknowledged uh, in his uh, The True Law of Monarchies, his own work. So, um, you know, there's a lot more going on here than at face value because James actually acknowledges this in his own writings. Um, uh, the, so I'll just start again. The point being made is that God has raised up such tyrants to punish his people for their sins, but that the days of such tyrants are numbered. It did not take much imagination to apply this comment to the English situation under both James I and his successor, Charles I. God's people, the Puritans, were suffering, yet this was to be seen as a punishment for their sins, which would not last forever. Notice also how the Genevan notes regularly use the word tyrant to refer to kings. The King James Bible never uses this word, a fact noted with approval as much as relief by many royalists at this point. In point of fact, 
um, I read that the Geneva Bible uses the word tyrant 400, over 400 times and the uh, King James Bible um, doesn't use it um, even once. Anyway, let's go to Hampton Court. I'm really keen to get there. On a freezing cold morning in January 1604, the Hampton Court Conference was convened. Huge log fires burned within. The Archbishop was there, surrounded by his chosen bishops, all in their church regalia, which the Puritans could not abide. The Privy Council was also there, and other learned men. The conference was heavily biased in favour of the established church. There were 19 representatives for the Anglicans, including many noted bishops and deans, but there were only four Puritans, and indeed those four who were invited were not chosen by their own, but were chosen by the established church because they were of a more moderate stripe. King James appointed himself moderator, and as best as we can believe, set out to be an impartial chairman. We are going to see how impartial he was here shortly, giving both sides a good blast so they knew what was expected. Um, We're going to come to that shortly. Uh, I think you'll be surprised um, how heavy-duty James could be when he wanted to be. Um, The topics to be discussed were grouped into three more general headings. Uh, One, the Book of Common Prayer. Two, excommunication in the ecclesiastical courts. And three, the provision of fit and able ministers for Ireland. Now, obviously missing from the list is any mention of a new Bible. Okay, so now let's get into some of the politics of the conference. We're going to see here that James was described as being both canny and jokey at the conference, uh, and also vulgar and vain, by the way. But there was a sting in his tail, and he had his way of getting what he wanted. Uh, I said that bit about the sting in his tail because, you know, he's regarded as jokey. Um, uh, so, you know, often people that are jokey have a underlying intent. Now, um, now where was I? Okay, so James had his way of getting what he wanted. Now, yes, I believe he tried to be seen as a mediator between the established church and the Puritans for all the right reasons. But the way he went about it, well, I won't be surprised if you see it as manipulative. Take careful note here of what he says to the Anglicans after he has the Puritans removed, and then pay just as much attention to how he treats the Puritans when he has them on his own. In fact, actually, he didn't have them completely on his own. He had backup while he was talking to them. So let's go with some of the politics of the Hampton Court Conference. The only outsider, ironically enough, was the king. He had scarcely known bishops and never seen the surplice or the cross before coming to England. He spoke with an acutely Scottish accent and pronounced his Latin and Greek in ways the English could scarcely understand. And as the incident at Newark had shown, his touch was not always sure. It was in many ways James's sheer oddness which steered the conference into rather dark and confused channels. First, he sent word that the reformers should retire. He wanted to speak to the bishops and deans alone. They were to sit on one side of the room. The privy council was to sit and listen on the other. The four Puritans left, and the Lord Chamberlain shut the door behind them. After a while, as the lords and bishops waited there in silence, the king came in. 
he was charm itself passed a few pleasant gratulations with some of the lords and then sat down in the chair that stood in front of the cloth of state he kept his hat on as he surveyed the great englishmen around him he was of course practised in the role he had been king of a bitterly divided nation for as long quite literally as he could remember and now he wooed his audience salomon speaketh the unctuous william barlow dean of chester reported in the ever repeated cliche of the reign james's words falling on the ears of his amazed and delighted hearers barlow said were like apples of gold with pictures of silver barlow's account makes it seem as if king and bishops had shown little but love and harmony to each other but they hadn't barlow a translator he would chair the key committee in charge of the new testament epistles was lying the king had fiercely attacked the bishops and openly slapped them down the dean was the official propagandist for the bishop's cause and his pamphlet was a carefully slanted version of events the source we're using here for our narrative is uh, nicholson's god's secretaries but i want to give you an uh, an alternate view or should i say a bit more thorough view of james's physical appearance at the conference so this is from opfell's the king james bible translator it's one of the better books on the topic if you can get a hold of the it's quite hard to come across wearing a high-crowned spanish hat james presided at a royal distance from the clergyman who sat uncovered in his presence despite a knobby nose his face as hugh walpole has noted was not unpleasant he had large prominent blue eyes and they stared at the person with whom he talked as though he would read all secrets his cheeks were highly coloured and healthy his hair brown and his beard thin and scattered but he was short and fat and when he moved about he had little royal posture waddling like a duck in the quilted doublet and stuffed and stiff dutch breeches he wore for fear of an assassin's dagger thrust I've come across this a couple of times before, the description of James uh, wearing um, sort of like, uh, I guess, the 17th century version of body armour um, because he was uh, fearful of assassination. So he, so whenever he was in public, for the most part, what I've read is that he wore heavily stuffed clothing to protect him from the assassin, from the assassin's thrust. A physical cause lay behind that tottering gait. As a result of childhood rickets, his legs were abnormally weak. At Hampton Court, the vivid red stockings he wore only called attention to his disability. So let's go back to our other narrative now for more. James did begin smoothly and graciously. It pleased him both to enter into a gratulation to Almighty God at which words he put off his hat for bringing him into the promised land where religion was purely professed where he sat among grave learned and reverend men not before elsewhere a king without state without honour without order where beardless boys would brave him to his face it was charming crafty complicit flattering collusive the speech of a politician three decades on a throne a smile hangs about the words his doffing of his hat to God, surely of witticism. The description of England as a promised land, surely an act of flattery to the Englishmen around him. The bishops, too, began emolliently. 
Poor old John Whitgift addressed the king on his knees as they discussed technical points about baptism, confirmation, the too frequent use of excommunication. Whitgift and Bancroft quoted both the Bible and Mr. Calvin. James congratulated himself on his own moderation. It was only a matter of months ago, he told them, that he was berating a Scots minister on not paying enough attention to the rite of baptism. Now he had to instruct these English bishops on revering it too highly. Again, there is that Jamesian note of seriousness and jokiness lying unresolved together. The kneeling bishops insisted that the Church of England, as it stood these last forty years, was as near perfect the state of the primitive church as any in the world. And if the church had persisted well enough for forty years, then why the need to change anything? Suddenly, this was too much, and James could be patient and politic no longer. It was no reason that because a man had been sick of the poxy for forty years, therefore he should not be cured at length. It was a coarse interjection. Had anyone previously compared the Church of England to a man with a clap? James clearly was not entirely reliable. Unwilling to be boxed into conservative, anti-Puritan compartment the bishops would have liked. History may have confined James in to a proto-absolutist divine right of kings advocate, but the reality inevitably was more complicated. To the bishop's horror, James began to lecture them, playing the Puritan, as Andrews later described it. So here we have James being accused of acting like a Puritan by the Anglicans and by Lancelot Andrews, no less. And he's going to figure greatly as we go on in this series, um, as he's one of the major translators for the King James Bible, because um, he's one of the... At the time, I think somewhere I read he's like about the third best linguist uh, uh, from the British Isles in the world at the time. Um, he knew several languages, I think six or seven fluently. And, you know, um, certainly he was well versed in uh, many of the ancient languages and was well across um, all of the modern language of Europe at the time. Anyway, the point here is, um, to take note of is that um, the Anglicans are thinking that <clears throat> James is a Puritan. You know, he's acting like a Puritan. He's been up there in Scotland amongst the Puritans far too long. But as you're going to see, James is being crafty here. He's playing a bit of a game. And, uh, and that's why a couple of times you'll hear him being likened to Solomon, King Solomon. He's, he's wise. Um, and I'm not sure if this is a correct word, but he's also described as crafty. Now, I don't know enough about Solomon to um, to say whether he was crafty. But we've got James here being referred to as both wise and crafty. And you're going to see how it plays out um, here with the Anglicans and later on when he um, has the Puritans on their own how he treats them. Let's see what they think of him because you're going to see the roles are changed around again. It's like James is playing a double game, but really he has a reason. The ultimate goal, we're going to find out what his goals are. So he's not just doing it to antagonize them. Um, I think, you know, I need to make that point. I really want to drive that home. He's not doing this just to, you know, antagonize either side, but He's doing it to reach a goal and he's being very crafty 
and wise about it. Anyway, um, that's my commentary. Let's get back to this uh, narrative here right now. They were not to pursue nonconformists with the violence they were accustomed to. This was aimed at both Whitgift and Bancroft for their stamping out the English Presbyterians under Elizabeth, but were to treat them more gently than ever they had done before. These statements were politically canny. The bishops were still unsure where James stood and were a means of establishing him as the holder of the ring, the Solomon-like judge and arbiter who belonged to no one side. Anyway, the questions implied, why did these bishops think that their church, unlike any other human institution, was not corrupt and in need of repair? What arrogance was that? Wasn't everything in this world subject to decay and decline? Where did they think they were? In some kind of perfected heaven? The atmosphere of the conference had suddenly sharpened. They had been talking for three hours. It was not a good atmosphere. This was a court that knew everything about duplicity and politicking, constantly aware of the unreliability of language and men, of whisperings in ears and comments muttered behind the hand, but which nevertheless valued a courteous surface, the smooth and upholstered working of the demands of power. James resumed his unique combination of Solomon-like distance and jokey vulgarity. Religion, he told them, was the soul of kingdom, and unity the life of religion. He would clear up some doubts, he would have a few passages changed in the prayer book, in the rubrics rather than the body of the text, to be inserted by way rather of some explanation than of any alteration at all. He would see the Puritan party on Monday morning. He was not looking forward to it. Howsoever he lived among Puritans, and was kept for the most part as a ward under them, yet since he was the age of his son ten years old, he ever disliked their opinions. As the Savior of the world said, though he lived among them, he was not one of them. With that breathtaking comparison between his own position and Christ walking among the heathen, James dismissed the bishops and deans. It was a confession that, in effect, he had been playing with them. He may have appeared to be taunting them with the very charges the Puritans were laying against them, but when it came to the point, James wanted to buttress the established church. Nevertheless, Solomon liked to the end, he was anxious that the established church itself should be cleansed of impurities. It is the classic Jamesian position, self-congratulatory, vain, and perhaps, in the end, surprisingly and against the odds, so there we have it. So did you see how James played that with the Anglican Church? <clears throat> One of his goals for the Anglican Church was change. He realized that, you know, that the church did need f further reforming. And so he was using tactics. You know, he was being a bit foxy with them um, and using those sort of tactics to get what he wanted um, but it certainly was, he was pro-Anglican, there is absolutely no doubt about that, but he did realise that they needed change, so if you pick that up in it, um, that was part of the points there that I get out of it, and um, so if you miss that, sort of just rewind that bit there and, and have another listen to it. Um, and you also pick up that, you know, he's uh, sort of a bit vulgar, you heard his reference there to the pox, 
who else would ever have referred to the Anglican church as like a man having the pox? It, it was kind of vulgar. He was jokey. You know, the commentator there said like he's jokey, he's vulgar, um, uh, he's vain. But the main thing is to get out of that. He's crafty and he's wise. And I'm sure that he had goals that he personally wanted to reach and he had ways that he wanted to go about reaching them um and i would also argue if you you know we'll probably see it a little bit further down the track here if we haven't picked it up already um he is for unity he wants to bring unity he doesn't want them he you know we heard there just now uh he doesn't want them to attack the puritans the nonconformists um, they're not to attack them like they did in Elizabeth's time. He wants them to back off. Um, in a way, I can sort of see him thinking, you guys back off, I'll handle them. And that's what we're going to see. Coming up next, we're going to see how he does handle the Puritans, the nonconformists. We'll see how he deals with them. Um, this is interesting. I think you're going to find it um, ever increasingly interesting as we go along. On Monday, the tactics were exactly and intelligently handled by James to put the burden of proof on the Puritans. Unless they could show that there was something in Scripture explicitly condemning the bishop's administration of confirmation, or the use of the cross in baptism, or of the ring in a wedding service, or kneeling to receive communion, or the wearing of the surplice, or about the institution of episcopacy itself, he would not interfere with the accustomed ceremony or government of the church. That church, for all its abuses, was a comfortable bed in which to set a monarchy. Any radicalization of it, diminishing the power and status of the bishops, or replacing them with presbyteries, inherently argumentative and overweening groups of know-all elders or presbyters, would, in essence, be too Scottish. The last thing he wanted was a return to the horrors north of the border. Presbyteries represented everything he most loathed and despised. James may have been rude, challenging, and clever with the bishops. Now, he was even worse with the Puritans. The four plaintiffs, as Barlow called them, were ushered into the presence chamber where little ten-year-old Prince Henry was sitting beside his father on a stool. With them were Thomas Bilson, Bishop of Winchester, the most political of all courtier bishops, a member of the Privy Council, who scarcely ever visited his diocese except to administer oppressive justice, and who, with Miles Smith, would play a critical role in the final stages of the translation, and Bancroft. No Henry Robinsons or James Montagus, nor any other sympathetic bishops here, just the two hardcore royal apologists. It must have been alarming. James told them he was now ready to hear at large what they could object or say, and so willed them to begin, whereupon, they four kneeling down, D. Reynolds, the foreman, began. They were on the spot. James was famous across Europe as a theological disputant. Seventeenth-century hunting often involved the enclosing of semi-tame animals within the pales of a park and then slaughtering them at one's leisure, sometimes from a stand in front of which the animals would be driven. And now this too felt a little like another day at the strange, enclosed kind of chase. It lasted five hours, and the Puritans were humiliated. James sniped at them and pursued them into awkward corners, occasionally calling in Bilson and Bancroft, and then, for variety's sake, 
rather than for necessity. The four Puritans tried to parry the blows. John Reynolds was the principal mouth and speaker. Chatterton, mute as any fish. Newstubbs spoke a little about his loathing of the cross, for which Lancelot Andrews, at least in one account, took him to task, and the fourth, an obscure and moderate preacher called Thomas Spark, or Sparks, who within a year or two would share with Bancroft the idea that bishops like kings were appointed by God, said hardly anything at all. But James was freewheeling through their points, as though dancing in a kind of theological party. We have kept such a revel with the Puritans ere these two days, he wrote. Okay, so you can see what's going on here now. It's the Puritans' turn uh, to get a beating from James, a sound theological whipping, as I'm sure he would have saw it. But as you also hear here, he's not on his own. He's bringing in uh, Bancroft. And again, I'll point out to you, uh, Lancelot Andrews, keep him in mind, uh, one of the top uh, linguists of the era. Uh, so the poor old Puritans are uh, boxed in a corner. They're heavily outnumbered. They're heavily outgunned. Uh, two of them aren't saying much, and a couple of them are trying to stand up for what they believe, the changes that they want to see. And it really sounds like James is enjoying it, enjoying this. Um, just as I'm sure he enjoyed haranguing the Anglicans, uh, and they, they might have thought, okay, well, you know, James is on our side. I'm sure both sides, uh, I'm sure both the Anglican and the Puritan side, um, thought they had, might have had James on their team. But, uh, as it turns out, James is, um, James is playing his own game here. James is playing the King's game. And uh, as you can see, the author here is also saying that some of it is getting a bit nasty. Um, so it's it's rough and tumble in the world of theology. James is absolutely enjoying this. Um, and it doesn't look like the Puritans are going to get their way. But we'll move on and, and see what more beating they get. But then we will get to the exciting point um, for us from our perspective um, of what's going to come out of this. Um, James and the Puritans have got a couple more things up their sleeve. And I'm also sure that when we find out what they are, I'm sure people like Bancroft and Lancelot Andrews, they're going to rub their uh, hands with joy once they come to realise that they're going to have to play a big part in this. They're going to be given the roles in this. Uh, at first, they probably thought um, they'd be against the new Bible, but you're going to find out that they're probably going to relish this and jump into it. So anyway... I'm uh, rambling a bit here, but I'm absolutely enjoying the narrative. So let, let's continue. Poor, dignified, generous Reynolds and Chatterton stood as if in the stocks, the royal squibs falling around them. Reynolds named the familiar abuses, the ceremony of confirmation, which had no basis in scripture, where adult baptism was the only recognized form of induction into the church. The use of the cross as a kind of magic symbol the surplus, a papist joke, which clearly had nothing whatsoever to do with Christ, the apostles, or anything discoverable in Scripture, kneeling at communion. Another piece of superstitious symbolism, as though the bread and wine were indeed the blood and body of Christ, when it was an essential aspect of all Protestant thought that they were merely reminders of what had happened on the cross, not a magical reenactment of it, 
and not to be bowed to. To Lancelot Andrews, always insistent on the value of ceremony, this was absurd. Did Protestants pretend, he asked, that God will have us worship him like elephants, as if we had no joints in our knees? James dismissed all the Puritan objections. He was familiar with them all. They were the points which any Scots Presbyterian would have made, and which strict English Protestants, dissatisfied with the compromise of the English church, had been making since the 1550s. Everyone knew the territory. There were no surprises, but the atmosphere was nasty. These were moderate and distinguished men, suggesting moderate changes. But James, and Bancroft, who seems to have been in an excitable state at the theater unfolding around him, was treating them like extreme schismatics from the outer reaches of Anabaptist lunacy. Nothing like this had ever happened under Elizabeth, simply because Elizabeth, a more distant and less engaged monarch, basing her authority on the aura of that very distance, would not have countenanced it. James enjoyed the roughness of the theological argument, and Bancroft's eyes must have been wide with delight. Just a short break here to say thank you to everyone who has shared the series and have written to me. Please, if you like the series and you'd like it to continue, please share it. It's free and I've got nothing to sell. So won't you please take the time, play your part and share the series. Also a reminder that the series is available on iTunes and I think the best way to make sure you don't miss any episodes is to go to my website and sign up for the email notifications. Um, also, I want to send out a cooey to John and all his mob listening down there on the south side of Bris Vegas. G'day use mob, I hope you all gather round the wireless listening intently. Okay, that's enough nonsense from me. Let's get back to episode 7, the Hampton Court Conference. Reynolds said he didn't like the sign of the cross. James told him that by making such an objection, he was playing into the hands of the papists. Reynolds then raised the question of church government. Should the bishop alone be judge and administrator in his diocese? Or could there be a kind of committee of other ministers to help him? That was Reynolds' reasonable meaning. But he used the wrong word. He must have cursed himself as it slipped out. Why shouldn't the bishops govern, Reynolds suggested, jointly with the presbytery of their brethren, the pastors and ministers of the church? The word presbytery released a torrent in the king. A presbytery? If you aim at a Scots presbytery, it agreeeth as well with monarchy as God and the devil. He would have the presbytery buried in silence for these seven years, and if then he grew idle, lazy, fat, and pursy, short of breath. I will set up a presbytery, saith he, to exercise my body and my patience. This was the crux. James' experience of angry and threatening Presbyterians in Scotland, who endlessly and loudly promoted the theory that kings were subject to gods and so to the church's judgment, was never going to return to that. It was too challenging and too uncomfortable. The beauty of the Church of England, with its full panoply of bishops and archbishops, was its explicit acceptance of the king as its head. Bishops without a king, an Episcopal Republic, was perhaps a possibility. But a king without bishops, subject to a presbytery, was always in danger of being removed. It was a revolution waiting to happen. Bishops were the sine qua non of the kind of monarchy and church James needed, 
wanted, and believed in. No bishops, he told Reynolds furiously. No king. That, of course, was precisely the elision of the political and the religious points which the moderate Puritans had been anxious to avoid and which the bishops, for months now, had been working to achieve. It meant one thing. The bishops' party had won. Into this fierce, overheated atmosphere, where the mild divisions in the Church of England were being whipped into extremity by the quick, intellectual, jockey, combative, slightly unsocialized banter, argument, and bullying of the king, egged on by the excited Bancroft, the first suggestion, the seed of the King James Bible, dropped. It came from John Reynolds at the end of a long list of suggestions. The petitioning ministers he represented would like only one translation of ye Bible to be authentical and read in ye church. Oh dear, poor old Reynolds mentioning the word presbytery. He must have just bit his tongue when it came out of his mouth. It sent James, you know, ballistic uh, and obviously didn't her, uh, help their cause at all. He was already on to them and after them anyway, so um, that certainly didn't help them when that word came out of poor old Reynolds' mouth. And we see Bancroft and the others must have enjoyed that as well. It also draws out here James's idea that uh, uh, a king needs bishops. Without bishops, um, there can be no king. So, um, so that would have also uh, buttressed the Anglicans who heard that come out of his mouth. Um, again, I'll re I know I'm repeating myself, but don't forget, just a few days beforehand, he had given them a bit of a whipping. And I did mention he did understand that the Anglican Church at the time did need some form of reformation, but just how far that would be, I'm not sure how far he would want it to go because he wouldn't want the changes or too many of the changes that the um, Puritans are suggesting. Uh, he wants to keep the support of the bishops, um, and so therefore he's walking a fine line, but he's walking his line. Uh, as I said before again, um, uh, he's walking James's line. He's enjoying this. And now, though, as we've just heard, uh, the mention of a new Bible. Now, we're going to change authors here. We have been up until this point now. We've been drawing from uh, McGrath, but now we're going to switch to Nicholson now that we've come to this. I think he describes this part a little bit better about the mentioning of a new Bible. This is, this is where the rubber meets the road. So let's get to that now. The breakthrough came when John Reynolds, the leader of the small Puritan delegation, proposed a new Bible translation. It is not clear where this proposal came from nor what the underlying motivation might have been. In his account of the meeting, Toby Matthew, Bishop of Durham, noted a Puritan demand that only one translation of the Bible was to be declared authentical and read in the church. Was this a negotiating strategy to secure approval for the Geneva Bible and establish it as the only Bible authorized to be read aloud in churches? Perhaps Reynolds might have expected his proposal for the Geneva Bible only to be read in churches to have failed, thus allowing him to make the apparently lesser request that the Geneva Bible should simply be one of a number of translations authorized for use in public worship, 
either in addition to or instead of the bishop's Bible. In this way, Puritan preachers would be able to use the Geneva Bible in public without falling foul of existing laws. Bishop Bancroft, who acted as the leader of the Anglican contingent throughout the conference, had opposed virtually everything Reynolds wanted and saw no reason to change strategy at this point. A news translation? Surely not. If every man's humor were followed, there would be no end of translating. Bancroft's strategy was simple. Uniform hostility to change. Yet James saw his opening. Here was a major concession he could make without causing any pressing difficulties to anyone. A translation of this magnitude took time, so he was not committing himself to anything with short-term implications. The longer the translation took, the better. It would postpone religious controversy to an indeterminate point in the future. He concurred immediately with the suggestion. James declared that he had yet to see a Bible well translated into English and offered his opinion that, of all, that of Geneva is the worst. James thus directed that the best learned in both universities, at this stage England had only two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, should begin work on a new translation of the Bible, which would be reviewed by the bishops and the chief learned of the church, from them to be presented to the Privy Council, and lastly to be ratified by royal authority, so that the whole church would be bound to it and none other. Okay, so we might leave it there. Um, did you enjoy that one? You may have to go back and replace some portions, but keep in mind that from our perspective, the most important thing to come out of the Hampton Court Conference was the agreement to begin a new translation of the Bible. Going back to something we spoke about earlier in this episode, James and the Anglican leadership were not fond of the marginal notes in the Geneva Bible, and there were to be none in the New Bible. Next time we're going to look at just what would be allowed in the New Bible. We will examine the rules for this new translation, and we'll also look at just who was given the job of overseeing it. How many Puritans do you think will be involved? How many Catholics? Let's talk about that next time on A History of the King James Bible Podcast. So until then, God bless. And hooroo.